Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Nick Sinner plays guitar in the three-time Grammy-nominated band Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs um, and hardcore group Head Wound City. His photos have been published in four previous books, as well as in the New York Times, Vice, and Rolling Stone. He has exhibited in solo shows in Tokyo, Berlin, New York, London, Los Angeles, and Mexico City. Zachary Lopez lives in New York City, where he has tended bar for the last 20 years. He's a regular contributor to Noisy, and his music and culture writing have also appeared in Vice, Hazlitt, Pitchfork, Bandcamp Daily, Talkhouse Inc., and Penthouse. Stacy Wakefield's artist books published for more uh, published for many years under the imprint Evil Twin have been collected by institutions including the Museum of Modern Art in New York and London's Tate Modern. Her first novel, The Sunshine Crust Baking Factory, was published by Akashic in 2015. She lives in Cats in the Catskills and Brooklyn. We're thrilled to have them here in the store this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. So you'll have to forgive me, I have a cold, so uh, I'll be a little scratchy, and for the love of God, don't shake my hand or anything. Reading, tempting as that may be,
131 different things is a story that absolutely did not need telling about people who make minute by minute deliriously poor choices. In the tradition, while making no claims of being their equals, of tales of the heart, like Pride and Prejudice, When Harry Met Sally, and the Jean Grey Cyclops Wolverine 50 year plus love triangle, 131 different things is a romance, if one caught with baby laxative. I hope that this brief talk will provide a useful guide to the characters, based on real people I stopped talking to years ago, and places that are now banks and empty storefronts. Sam and Francis, not their real names, lived in a strange time, but not so strange as to be interesting unto itself. 2006 New York City was, in music critics speak, a transitional time. A vague and uncertain time when the Strokes backlash was realized as unsustainable and people were just starting to feel out calling firefighters assholes aloud again. Being bartenders by trade and having cashed in their larger dreams by roughly the year 2000, the label-signing frenzy that consumed gentrified Brooklyn in the early aughts barely touched our heroes. For the purposes of this discussion, let's assume that everyone here has a passing knowledge of New York geography that one can assume of anyone who has seen more than three episodes of Law & Order. Back when it was pure procedural and before they tried to scully and molder the sex crime whites with interminable backstory. Our tour of 2006 New York is incomplete by both time constraints and Sam and Francis's aversion to traveling above 14th Street. It should also be noted that by 2006, most of the real action was in Brooklyn. But this is a story about holdouts. The home base of our heroes, where Sam first hears that his one true love, Vicky, is drinking again, and therefore is again capable of loving him, Sam's Ithaca, if you will, is Pim's Cup. A dive bar not very loosely based on Mars Bar. Mars Bar was on 2nd Avenue and 1st Street. It was simultaneously over and underrated, only dwarfed in sentimental revisionism by CBGBs. The Jameson was rarely Jameson, and the call was always well, and the bathrooms had no locks so that the OD could be easily pulled out and dragged across the street before an ambulance was called. The jukebox, however, was exceptional. With its soundtrack, innumerable mid-level New York rock personages entered into and occasionally consummated their relationships with their future ex-wives and husbands in the bar. In this way, there is no better place on the map to start a lover's journey. On the night in question, Sam and Francis are driven from Pim's Cup 
by the romantic competition of a skinhead crew that is loosely based on New York's 211 boot boys. While the author's working knowledge of current skinhead crew affiliations are limited, in 2006, 211 Boot Boys had no connection with the White Pride prison gang of similar name. This may have since changed, but at the time, they were just nationalist sociopaths without specific ideology. A couple of them were even solid hangs if one didn't mind the constant threat of physical violence and one could pretend to know more than one song by Slade. But I digress. After a quick exit from Pims, our heroes make their way to Down the Street, a bar somewhat based on the late lamented bar Lit. Lit was a cave with a gallery in the back, with exactly as many bathrooms as it needed to service a crowd prone to long group meetings therein. How one felt about Lit is entirely dependent on how one felt about Interpol after Carlos D left. From down the street, Sam and Francis continue their search for Vicky to the C building. C building is based on the Blue Building, an expensive and glamorously ugly high-rise apartment complex that, while not built till 2007, symbolizes just about every corny thing that has happened to New York City in the last 30 years. Our narrator has only been inside it once, but there truly were, amongst all the bottles of cucumber-infused vodka, multiple copies of Infinite Jest in the apartment he visited. We almost changed that detail, thinking the joke too obvious. After failing to find Vicky on Essex Street, it's just a short jaunt to where the Ironweed stands. A dash of Manitobas, Handsome Dick Manitobas, pool table and rock poster emporium on Avenue A, mixed with the roughneck clientele of Double Down, topped off with nostalgia for Motor City, a bar so good that the collective hapcat unconsciousness forgot that it was an actual Detroit theme bar. Mainly, Ironweed is inspired by 9C, a bar that few cared about, but where the author first heard Paul Bear of Sheer Terror, DJing goth, soul, and sketchy boy anthems. Confusingly standing at the exact address of 9th and Avenue C, the Duchess says is next on our itinerary. It is a tribute to La Nouveau Justine, an S&M cafe that was actually on First Avenue and long closed by 2006, but was alive enough in Sam and Francis's memory. It was, after all, a sadomasochism-themed bar staffed by actual dominatrices to be willed back into existence so they could visit it and hope to find Sam's amour. We can ascribe the address mix-up to a Proustian meditation on the nature of memory or to the author not using a whiteboard while writing. Either way, as in many submissive relationships, our heroes don't find what they're looking for, but frustration is its own pleasure. Plus, the drinks are free because they're in the industry. At this point, Sam and Francis stop at a bodega to, as I've been assured that every scene must move the narrative forward, 
get some Little Debbie snacks. Trying to convey a scene in the subculture, if not literary sense, in a short number of pages requires a bit of broad strokes. So I hope that the owners of Beauty Bar, a splendid bunch who employed the author to change kegs for over a decade when he was barely qualified to do that, take no offense at their bar being used as a template for Castle Takes the King, a bar considerably less cool than Beauty Bar. Castle, where Sam encounters a past his prime emo rock star who literally makes Sam vomit, is also based on Angels and Kings, the short-lived nightclub owned by Fall Out Boy's Pete Wentz. That is best remembered, if at all, for its absence of celebrities and its bartender's inability to make a decent kamikaze shot. The days of rocker bars in Manhattan is long past, but for a time, a Betty Page tattoo was a currency of sorts, and that time should not be carelessly forgotten. After a brief stopover back at Pim's Cup, Sam and, Francis, Sam and Francis judiciously decide that they need drugs to continue. Anyone who has been in love before knows the feeling or something akin to it. In loving and reverential tribute to such New York stalwarts of desire as the cock, the fat cock and the hole, we journey to the package, located on Attorney Street, where the rock club Chenet once stood. At the package, they hope to find stimulants and instead find Sam's ex-wife Aviva dancing on the bar to Depeche Mode, symbolizing the, for good or ill, attraction gay bars have for the straight world. Cocaine, good music, women dancing without fear of molestation. They attain drugs. Sam hurts Aviva's feelings. Our heroes, again, for good or ill, continue to conform to a type. Revitalized by the bounty of South America's suffering, Sam and Francis return to Avenue A, where they enter the generically named underground. Based on a half dozen bars that I honestly can't remember the names of. Bars with pictures of John Lennon in a New York fucking city shirt and stripper poles and overpriced drinks served by attractive men and women who wanted to be models or actors. At the underground, Sam and Francis again fail to find Vicky and their nerves fray and their barely sublimated cruelty comes to the fore as they get the door guy beat up for the crime of having slash being a bravery-esque fauxhawk and also being more successful than them. Back to Pim's Cup for drinks and a brief makeout session for Francis. Tears are shed, but not by anyone who rates a name. In our tale's only concession to there being a west side to the island of Manhattan, our duo, on a tip, go to the inaccurately named East Egg. East Egg is based on a number of velvet rope, velvet rope nightclubs in the meatpacking district slash Chelsea that the author has only been in when a friend with more social cachet took 
These clubs are claustrophobic and edifying in the sense that one's true place in the larger hierarchy is revealed. Drinks are rarely less than $12. And even in 2006, nobody had heard of the band one was in. In this way, these exclusive venues serve as useful corrective to whatever self-mythology one might otherwise be prone to. At East Egg, we finally meet Vicky. Aviva is also there. Without giving too much away, there are too many people in a single occupancy bathroom trying to do too many things. The damage that can be done to a human heart in a New York City bathroom is epic. Sam, alone, returns to Pim's Cup. There is a fist fight involving skinheads and firemen. And Sam comes too, in every sense. Our boy is ready to be a man of sorts, within reason, after another drink or two. We end our tale on Avenue A at Odessa, the diner named after Odessa and placed where Odessa is. Some names are so innocent, changing them would be a crime in itself. It's hopefully not egregiously unsubtle to point out that the diner is the only location in the story with enough lighting to read a menu. Like the New York love stories that precede 131 different things, Desperately Seeking Susan, After Hours, King Kong, certain geographical details are left undisclosed. When our lovers leave together for home, their destination isn't on any map. Listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.